0: In just a second, I'll I'll explain what we're going to do here in a minute. Your handout, it has the rather, um, how should I say, uh, more overt and maybe borderline arrogant title. Um, My handout, my teaching note says, Presbyterianism, a biblical argument, or six reasons you should be a Presbyterian. And so um, what this is, is this is the distillation of a book that was written by Thomas Withero, and uh, we'll mention a little quote of his at the beginning uh, this morning. Uh, and it's a, very helpful, it's a very helpful take on how we can be self-conscious about how we order the church and how we go about things and, and what the scriptures teach about that. And so I do understand this is part, I think, of your inquirer's class kind of a thing, right? Okay, so um, let me pray, and I will, uh, I'll get into this, and um, we'll see what happens. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name in all the earth, for we worship you through your Son, and we live by the power of your Holy Spirit, without whom uh, we would be dead and blind. And we confess this morning that without Christ, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would give us grace this day to worship you, now to be discipled by you, that we would be self-conscious in how we live that we would commit ourselves fully and entirely in love to you uh, for the sake of your church. Uh, Bless all the brothers and sisters here this morning. Uh, Bless your church throughout the world as they have been uh, taking part in that great chorus of praise that traverses the face of this earth. We long for the day when uh, all nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues will be gathered together before the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, Confessing your glory, bless us now we pray in Jesus name. Amen. All right, um, I am happy to be interrupted by questions, and so as we go along, if you have a question, please uh, please raise your hand uh, or just just speak about it. Um, this is a bit of a deductive approach. What we're going to do is uh, I had two different handout outlines. I decided not to make you do the more uh, difficult note taking. You'll see that in each each of our six points, you see uh, a principle, a principle in bold and italics. That's the principle that we're driving toward. But I want to drive there uh, by extrapolating from the texts of Scripture. Uh, what we have now, I want to begin here. You see that quote at the top of your page. As it would not be wise for the preacher of the cross to leave the multitude to discover in the Bible the gospel for themselves so it is not wise to leave them without assistance in their search for Presbyterianism. And uh, Thomas Witherow's argument in this little book, The Apostolic Church, Which Is It?, is what he does is he lays out the three major forms of church government. He lays out the form of Presbyterianism, he lays out the form what we call the prelatic form of church government, which is your hierarchical form, uh, where you have your bishops and these different people. So you will find that in, uh, for example, obviously the Roman Catholic Church, your Anglican Episcopalian, your Methodist churches, um, and then the other kind of versions of that. And then you have your Congregationalism, which is your churches are independent, each one kind of a distinct entity in itself, uh, as opposed to being connectional uh, and organically related to other churches. Um, And uh, one of the things you might have heard as you've uh, lived and grown up in the church, you might have heard that the Bible doesn't teach anything definitively about church government. You might have heard that, you know, the Bible's not really clear, and while there is some latitude, there's some liberty in how we do things as a church broadly, or, or in what we would call polity, um, there are some principles that are very clear, and so we're going to go through some of those things, and especially as we get to the book of Acts, we're going to look at how did the early church, under the direct guidance of the how they do the for themselves, and how they interact with one another. So, let's look into this together, um, and let's look at the very first principle of the apostolic church. And what Swithero does, by the way, he introduces the three different forms of government, he pulls these six principles out, and then he asks the question, does this fit with this form, this form, or this form? And basically, if you kept a scorecard, by the end, I'll just tell you the end, Presbyterians have six uh, the uh, the Prelatics, I don't remember how many they have, but they don't have six, and uh, neither do the Congregationalists. So, I'm just telling you my perspective from the beginning. Obviously, I'm a Presbyterian minister. So, let's look at some of this. Uh, you have the text references in your outline. Uh, you're welcome to turn to those passages in Scripture if you would like, uh, but I will read them for you as we move along. Uh, first of all, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 20 and 23 It is opening up the Trinitarian glory of uh, the God of grace. And uh, Paul is bringing that section to a resounding conclusion. I think actually uh, Andy just recently preached through this. And he says that what Paul, Paul says, that what I'm praying for you is that you recognize some of these glorious things. And then he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his, at Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's that little phrase at the end of verse 22 that I really want you to key in on. That the Father gave Christ as head over all things. And what you need to recognize, that this should bring your mind to Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is head over all things, kings and nations, and rulers, principalities and powers. And the reason he has that supreme position is for the sake of his church. Okay, so Jesus Christ has preeminence. That's the great argument in Ephesians 1, over all things. 5.23, as it's discussing the relationship between husband and wife, uh, says the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And what you'll recognize there is that uh, it's not merely preeminent over all things, but then that particular and close, intimate relationship with his own church. And that's reflected again in Colossians 1.18, where Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so from these three texts, and there are others that we could look at, but for the sake of time, we'll look at these. The principle that we would glean from this or deduce from this is that, as you see there in your outline, the sole headship over the church is ascribed to Christ and him alone. And if by any chance somebody asks you, uh, if you're a member of a Presbyterian church, and they say, what? what is a Presbyterian? Or what's Presbyterianism all about? Don't say, first of all, don't say, well, presbyteries or plurality of elders, uh, those things are true. The number one principle in order and significance yes sir that that my friend, is a typo by yours truly, just to demonstrate to you that I am not the head of the church uh invested with perfection and infallibility. It should be s o l e it's been a I lost an hour of sleep last night. Thank you, Graham, for finding the speck in my eye um, and on the outline. Well done. Yes, I know. I, I, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. No, it's totally well taken. The S-O-L-E, right? Yes, headship over the church is ascribed to Christ and to him alone. Um, I want you to understand just briefly, and then I'll move on, the significance and the even historical precious value of this statement. Uh, I've I've done some, not a ton, but probably more than most of you, some study uh, of our Presbyterian forefathers in Scotland and in uh, Britain. And uh, many, many martyrs died painful, uh, excruciating deaths for this very confession, that Jesus Christ alone is king and head of the church. It was because the monarchs of earth tried to insert themselves into the rule of Jesus Christ over his church Um, that uh, they were willing to die for this. And so the the preeminence of Christ over the church is foremost. And so if somebody asks you, what is Presbyterianism all about? Your first answer needs to be, we believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the exclusive king and head of the church. Uh, His rule, his word is law. Um, In this, you need to understand also something. um, We live in an age of kind of squishy... Uh, it's like we believe in national laws sometimes, uh, but when we get into the church, it's like, well, you know, people just, it's spiritual, right? So people just have a lot more, you know, freedom, and it's kind of, it can be loosey-goosey. But Herman Bobbink very helpfully points out uh, in his dogmatics that uh, the church is both an organization and an institution. And when you think about the terminology of Christ as king and head, which of those, fr- which of those titles, king or head, refers to the church as an organization? Which one? The answer is king. Okay, As king, Jesus rules the grand organization of his church. It has officers. It has laws. It has a structure. It's the church militant. Okay, And then more organically, uh, when we talk about Christ as head, that is his relationship to the church as an organism, as a living thing. And uh, oftentimes there's a false dichotomy inserted into that where we think either the church is this living organism and there's friendliness and intimacy and love and bonds or it's this, this you know, towering behemoth organization. The fact is it's both an organization and an organism and Christ in his preeminence is both the king and the head as he rules over that. So if you think about Congregationalist churches, do, they, do most Protestant churches confess that Jesus is king and head of the church? The answer is yes, so if you 're keeping a tally, you can put con- you can put a, a c you can put oh that 's not going to work uh, you can put c you can put h for hierarchical and you can put p for Presbyterian. Uh, one point for Congregationalists you get actually the problem is there 's a confession sometimes in the prolatic churches, but actually who 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 is the king and head of the Roman Catholic Church it 's the pope right uh, it 's the Pope, and we would we would say, uh, we, would, we would respond with anathemas uh, to those kinds of things. Jesus is king and head of the church. Any questions on that first principle? And obviously Presbyterian, get a point. Okay, let's move on. Um, the second principle. Uh, this is very important. And uh, have anyone, anyone here ever read Samuel Rutherford's, any of Samuel Rutherford's letters? The letters of Samuel Rutherford? We got one. Ah, my congregation. Great. Okay. Uh, If you've not read any of Samuel Rutherford's letters, I I regret to inform you that you are an impoverished Christian. Uh, Let me encourage you. You can get a little copy of it, uh, The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. There's a big fat copy. It's like 50 bucks. You can get that too if you have a little extra spending money. Uh, There's also a tiny little booklet uh, from Banner of Truth called The Loveliness of Christ with their little snippets taken from his letters. I would highly encourage you, uh, to get a hold of that and read it. It will, it will teach you to love Jesus Christ in a way, perhaps, that has been foreign to you. Uh, and some, Anyway, it's, it's wonderful. The reason I bring up Samuel Rutherford is he was, he was exiled from the church, in his church in Scotland. Um, and he, from prison and from his exile, would write to his congregation. And a lot of these letters are compiled from, from his work in that respect. And I've been struck that from time to time in his letters, he is telling his congregants, don't forget your rights as Presbyterians. Don't forget your right to call your own ministers. The reason this was significant is that uh, James I and then eventually it would be Charles I, they were imposing ceremonial Anglicanism into the Church of Scotland. And um, this is what, and the reason Rutherford was, was kicked out was because he would not pay obeisance to the bishops and he would not give in to the ceremonialism. And um, this violates this principle of Presbyterianism. And so uh, let's, let's consider how this works. In Acts chapter 1 uh, verses 13 through 26, we're not going to read all of that, but you have an interesting text where uh, you have the church, the early church is actually looking to replace Judas, they need to fill his office with another apostle. And uh, I want to point out a couple of things to this. Now, none of you are ever going to vote to replace Judas's or any other office with an apostle. The apostles form part of the foundation of the church. That foundation's been laid, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Uh, But in Acts 1, as you begin reading this, what you notice is you have the uh, 120 saints in Jerusalem gathered together. Okay, they're there with the apostles. You see that in verses 13 and 14. Peter then stands up and he talks about the significance of what's about to happen and what needs to, what needs to happen. Now, he says in verse 21, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. What Peter is doing is he is setting forth, with apostolic authority, he is setting forth the qualifications for that apostolic office. I hope you can see that very clearly. And then look remarkably at verse 23. And they proposed two. Who's they? I would argue that the they is not the, 12, not the eleven apostles, but it's the people who are gathered there. Because it's the people's job to assess people from among themselves and to say, "I, I recognize." We could even call this a nomination. I recognize the qualifications of this man or that man, and they put them forth. So this is exactly what happens. They propose to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And then, in the extraordinary part, because it's an apostolic office, they they prayed. Uh, they cast lots. And um, we know that Matthias was chosen to be the 12th apostle. Now, what you're going to see also, and I'm going to come back to Acts 14.23 in a second. In Acts 6, when the need arises for deacons, the exact same thing happens. Uh, Peter recognizes we cannot leave the ministry of the word to serve tables. It's not to denigrate the service of tables. That's saying we can't take care of this massively significant ministry. It will take us away from the ministry of the word. But he says, you... Congregation, choose from among yourselves men with these qualifications: full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, etc. Okay, and then how many they put? Do you remember how many uh, candidates they put forward? There are seven candidates that are put forward, and the apostles recognize that, and then they lay hands on them, and they are ordained. Um, the last principle I want you to see in Acts fourteen twenty three. This is where Paul is going about to different cities, and the text says uh, in Acts fourteen twenty three. The text says, and when they had appointed, this is uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now that can sound like Paul's riding into town and basically choosing guys to be elders. But the word here that is translated by the word appointed is actually a compound word in Greek uh, where it essentially means to choose or elect by the laying on of hands. And so it's selection by hand raising. And what that actually communicates is, is there's a vote. There's a vote from the congregation where Paul is saying, hey, where, who, who are the men who are qualified? Are these people qualified? And there's a vote. And then those men by the apostle with his authority are ordained in the church. And what I want you to see from this principle is that it is the right, it is the right of the people to choose their own leaders. And there's a biblical theology behind this. Um, One of the stipulations for the kings who would reign over Israel was they had to be from among you. No foreign king was to rule over the people of Israel, but the people were to recognize leadership from among their own ranks. And in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord will continue to raise up men to rule in his church. And so principle number two, as I hope you can see exegetically derived, is that office bearers were chosen by the people. And this is the case both for elders and deacons, and with the argument from the apostle, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they choose apostles, if they recognize those qualifications, then we should also see by deduction, they're also choosing elders. Um, any questions on principle number two? Hope you're tracking with me. Yes, sir. Why do you think they cast lots for the elders and voted for the deacons? I think it's because... I think it's because, um, I do think it's because it's an extraordinary office. Uh, the apostle was, it's not a permanent office in the church. It's an office that is permanent in effect. Um, and again, we're in, the, we're in the pre, right there, pre-Pentecostal age and the times of gifts and signs and wonders. And so that's my argument. Um, there are some stories of men resorting to the casting of lots, um, I think it should only, if it's done, only in extremity, but probably not for the election of officers. Um, uh, Herman Bovink, actually, the uh, second time I mentioned him, he, he couldn't decide between a professorship in one place and another place, and he actually essentially cast lots and just sent a letter, and he didn't even know what he was choosing. So, so. that all for that appointment was so significant that believing in providence they believed in God. Essentially, yes, sir. How, whatever they were, yeah, I think that's the case. yeah. Not prescriptive in that sense. I don't think the lots are prescriptive for us, but certainly the aspect of, of selecting, recognizing men and putting them forward for, non, for election and then ordination, I think is, is prescriptive. Because you see it again in Acts 6. So, good question. All right, thirdly. Oh, well, keep a tally in your mind, okay? Uh, Roman Catholics, Prolatics, hierarchical form, are they allowed to choose their own leaders? No, remarkably, uh, bishops get to shuffle people around. Uh, There's a Methodist church across the street from our church, um, and Matt Parker, great guy, Uh, he's evangelical, he's solid. Uh, I'm thankful for him, Uh, but he was put there, uh, and thankfully they're letting him stay there for a while. I hope he stays there for a very long time. Uh, But yeah, they they shuffle him around, and bishops get shuffled around, and priests get shuffled around, and so uh, again, the the prolatics have zero still. No, they don't get any points yet. Uh, Congregationalists get to decide upon their own leadership, and certainly Presbyterians do as well. So I think the score is 2, 2, and 0 so far. Uh, Principle number three. Now, this is very important as we think about the arguments of the prelatic form of church government. And uh, if you go to Titus chapter 1, you'll read this. Uh, Paul writing to his young man there in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders, uh, elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and the children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And what you see there is Paul seamlessly uses two different terms for the office. He uses elders, plural, and we're going to come back to that. And that's your word presbyteros, where we get our t- term Presbyterian. And later on in overseer, he uses the term episcopon, which is your word for which is where you get your word Episcopalian. Um, presbyteros is, is directed mainly to the, the age or maturity of a man. Uh, episkopos is to the function of that man to oversee or to watch over. And what you'll recognize there in various different English translations, you'll see elders and bishops or elders and overseers. And you see Paul use those two words uh, completely interchangeably. The same thing in Acts 20. I'm not going to read this whole section. But in Acts 20, if you read through verses 17 through 28, when Paul calls the elders of the church to himself in Miletus, he says he calls the elders in verse 17... But then in in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, actually, overseers. And so he calls the elders and he says, God made you bishops. And uh, this is also the case that you see in Philippians 1 1. Uh, He says, You know, to the church there in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Why is it that Paul interchanges these terms? Uh, I think that the conclusion then is that there are actually two terms that describe different facets of the same office. Now, uh, in the Roman Catholic world, in the uh, hierarchical world, are elders the same thing as bishops? They're not. They're different. And actually, bishops are superior to elders. Um, And this is actually another point where they would get zero. But exegetically, from the text, we learn that bishops and elders are the same thing. And I've kind of joked with my congregation, and and we kind of joke. It's you know sometimes Presbyterian pastors uh, can tell nerdy jokes, uh, and we meet in Georgia with the ministers every month or so when we pray, and, and sometimes we jokingly refer to one another as the bishop of Royston or the bishop of uh, Atlanta. You know the bishop of Atlanta Zeki is far more prominent than the bishop of Royston, of course. Um, I have a small C, you know. But uh, the reality is, guys, bishop and elder are two different names for the exact same office. And we ought not to distinguish between the two. Um, I remember meeting with, so in, where I live is Pentecostal land. And Pentecostals have appropriated this kind of hierarchical government. And so they do have conferences, which is the same thing as a presbytery. But over that conference, they actually have a bishop. Okay? And I remember meeting a guy with a big gold ring. Uh, I was just new to the area. And he introduced himself as bishop. Oh, it wasn't he was, he was a godly man. I forget the guy before him. Uh, He introduced himself as Bishop so-and-so. And and I really wanted to introduce myself as Bishop Myers, uh, but I didn't uh, because I was like 25 and I felt dumb. But it would be appropriate for you to call your pastor Bishop Juan or Bishop Andy if you wanted to, but I don't recommend it. What? Uh, You could call him pasta if you wanted to, but we are not Rastafarians here, Graham. That was an unhelpful comment, so (laughs) that's okay. I love you. All right. So uh, any questions on principle number three? Yes, ma'am. Yes. um I was going to a Lincoln Church here and left that had a bishop as the leader whatever. And and a woman. So there's two strikes against But they do that, I was kinda shocked that they did that, they don't do that in Missouri Cynthia. I hope not to offend anyone too much, but um don't spend too much time trying to understand Lutherans. Um, it's just, anyway, uh, th- th- it's a good point. And the point is this. Go back to the text. What do the scriptures teach us? Okay, what do the scriptures teach us? There's a sharp decline. Uh, this is one of the difficulties is, is after the apostolic age, there's a very sharp decline, especially with respect to church government. And you find that immediately. Um, and there are reasons for that that we don't have time to get into this morning, uh, but that's why scripture is preeminent. We have to go back to the text, and also I have to keep moving because I've uh, spent too much time on the first three points. So let's keep rolling. Uh, principle number four. Uh, I'm going to revisit. Oh yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Um, when did that's that's a good question. I would I would say. Uh, let's remember, the church doesn't arise out of nothing, right? And um, to be a member in Israel, you had to be circumcised, or uh, for women, underneath the headship of one who had committed to the Lord of hosts and himself was circumcised. And we recognize these principles. In America, well, it's supposed to be in America, you're not allowed to vote unless you're a citizen, right? Well, you know. But um, there's a principle of you need to belong, before you're allowed actually to have a legal standing for voting, and I think I think you can connect those two. And and baptism uh, is the is the principle of membership in the church. And so I would I would I would argue like there's no explicit reference to say okay and you know when you're of this age and this status you can vote. Um, but I think as we think about good and necessary consequence and, and things like that, that would be my answer. Um, so unless it doesn't say. Sound- I don't, know, no, no. And, and this is where also, so there are very clear principles laid down in Scripture, okay, um, and then there are also things that our, West, our confession teaches us are left to uh, Christian prudence and the light of nature. There are certain principles that do govern, and, and the principle of self-government is something that's inherent to Presbyterianism. And so a body has the right to say, this is how we're going to do certain things under the lordship of Christ. And I think that's another argument where you're allowed to say, hey, uh, these are our standards. Um, uh, You know, one other example um, is in in the Old Testament, uh, Gentiles were allowed to offer sacrifices at the temple. But they were not allowed to partake of the Passover until they had committed to the nation via confession of faith and circumcision that's in numbers somewhere i forget the chapter so you do see those those principles you have to belong before you have the rights of, of membership yes sir um uh, would you say that membership is the actual formal recognition of the validity of i I'm going maybe let me think about it i got to keep going that's a good question but it's not pertinent here yeah, thank you. All right, let me keep rolling. Good questions. Thank you. Uh, fourth principle, uh, in Acts fourteen 23, we've already talked about this. Uh, this is where I mentioned that word about the approval by the, by the raising of hands. It's, it's suggestive, I think very clearly suggestive of a vote. But you'll recognize that what Paul says here, or what Luke writes about Paul, that they had appointed elders, plural, uh, in every church. You also see in Acts twenty seventeen when Paul calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus, he doesn't say he called for a bishop or an elder, but it was elders, plural. Uh, Philippians 1, 1, again, as we just mentioned, uh, he says to the church in Philippi, with the bishops, plural, and deacons. And what is very clear here, Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ established not one, but 12 apostles. Now, there's a biblical theological reason for that as he's reconstituting Israel. He's spiritualizing Israel, if you will. There are 12 apostles uh, bringing along and making that segue to to the 12 tribes of Israel to the 12 apostles. But there's always, and the principle here is there's always a plurality of elders. Okay, there must be. There must be more than one. Now, does anybody know why? God would say, there must be more than one elder in my church, in my local churches. Why do you think? Say again? So accountability, mutual accountability. Yes, what did you say? There's the establishment of various things, uh, the, the credibility of the witness. Any others? There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Excellent. Any other reasons? There's a, there is a division of the labor. Uh, it'll come one day, brother. Uh, sorry. It's sometimes OPC church planning, like we're, we're doing the best we can, but it's just a little difficult. But, but most significantly, the reason there's a plurality of elders is that the glory of the reign of Jesus Christ cannot be embodied by one man. It cannot be. It must be distributed through multiple men because Jesus is the only king singular and head singular of the church. And undershepherds then rule in a plurality by delegation with a desire to serve him and to shepherd the people. So it's very, very significant that you remember that. Um, that's why it's ideal. That's why, for example, here you have a provisional session. Uh, we know that we live far away, but ge- geography and uh, circumstance, it's, it's necessary. I had to do the same thing for five years. Um, but by God's grace, the Lord will raise up elders uh, to help Andy and to help you all rule in this church, and it's and it's a wonderful thing. So each congregation has a plurality of elders. Any questions on that point? Yes, sir. Uh, there, so it does distinguish between the two. Uh, I I believe that all teaching elders are ruling elders but not all ruling elders are teaching elders. I actually, no offense to any PCA brothers, I don't like the term teaching elder. It kind of annoys me. I prefer the term pastor or minister, um, but, you know, that is what it is. Um, so, yes, there's a distinction. Uh, the book does talk about how when a session becomes too small to operate, that the press there, and then with concurrence of the congregation, can augment that session. And so when we organized, when our church particularized back in 2017, we ended up. We had four elder candidates. Uh, three ended up not being qualified, which broke my heart because I was like, "Oh no!" Um, one became a deacon, and two just weren't weren't able to continue on with the work. And so we requested the presbytery at that point, since I, it was me and one ruling elder, John Davis. We requested the presbytery to augment us with uh, Mister Bob Bailey from our sister church down the road. Um, So, yeah, you you want to have a multitude of, you want to have a plurality of ruling elders to be sure. Um, So, there you go. Very good. Let's keep driving on because we have a few more minutes left. Fifth principle. Fifth principle. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.14. We have here 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul here saying, uh, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the presbytery or the Council of Elders laid their hands on you. Um, now Timothy's work and office was unique. I believe he was an apostolic evangelist, uh, and what that means is uh, evangelists were, I think, the best way to think about them uh, in the New Testament age, uh, that is, apostolic age. Evangelists were essentially apostolic lieutenants, and what lieutenants do is they carry on the work of the superior in their in lieu of their presence. That's why it's a lieutenant. You see, um, so they're 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 tenant stewards of these people in the absence of their superior. And that's what um, that's what Timothy did. I don't think the office in that definition continues to this day. Um, we have a different designation for what an evangelist is. Anyway, uh, what you see, though, is there's a, there's a formal setting aside of Timothy through the laying on of hands by a multitude of counselors by the presbytery. You see the same thing in Acts 6, when the deacons are ordained, they lay hands on them and send them out. You see the same thing again in Acts 13, when the church commissions Paul and Barnabas to go and to carry on the apostolic work, uh, beginning in Antioch and continuing on outward. And this principle, then, is the principle of ordination uh, by the act of the Council of Elders or by the act of the Presbytery. Um, Ordination, Charles Spurgeon, a wonderful preacher, wasn't great on, on church government, wasn't great on ecclesiology. And one, I can't find the citation for this, but once he said, why do I need a bunch of men with empty heads to lay their hands on my empty head to be a minister of the gospel? I'm like, oh, you know, Spurgeon, he's great, except for when he's not. And so, fact is, what ordination is, is it's a solemn public recognition, not an investiture of a man with power, but the recognition of the calling that God has placed upon him, which happens only after only after the examination, only after the recognition by the church at large, by the local church or by the presbytery. And so uh, ordination must be the act of a presbytery. And we've forgotten our scorecard because I'm I'm hastening on here. So principle number four, in each congregational plurality of elders, do the the hierarchicalists have a plurality of elders in each church? The answer is no. How about congregationalists? Sometimes. Okay, so they get a half point. Okay, so it's zero, three and a half to four. Okay, so the Presbyterians have just edged out. But actually, this is where we have a little bit of a difference because I don't exactly know how, how congregationalists handle ordination all the time. There's probably a multitude, but it might be even be congregational. I'm sure it differs. Um, but the reason ordination needs to be by a multitude of men and not by a singular bishop is related to that principle of why a multitude of men need to govern in the church. It's because it's an act of Christ, uh, and then there's that public uh, recognition and declaration of ordination to set, up, set aside for that particular call. Uh, any questions on the fourth or fifth principle before we finish up? I hope you're being excited. These are six reasons you should be Presbyterian, and this fifth one is great. All right, number six. Acts 15, uh, we cannot read the whole thing, but Acts 15 is a remarkable story of uh, how the early church worked. Now, in Acts 15, I love how it begins. Luke, I I wonder, I sometimes wonder if Luke chuckled when he wrote these things by the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, Jews were coming down, or Jewish Christians, you should say, these are the first Judaizers that kind of come on the scene. They're saying you have to be circumcised. And in Acts 15, verse 2, I love this statement. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. Key in on that, to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, was Paul an apostle? At this point, is Paul an apostle? The answer is yes, very clearly. Okay? Why didn't Paul just pull apostolic rank and say, hey, Judaizers, as we call them now, I'm an apostle. Okay, go pound sand. Because he is functioning within the auspices of Christ's established church, and he says, "Let's take this is a significant issue. It is bearing on more than just the church here in Antioch. Let's go back to Jerusalem and deal with this question." And so um, you see there, helpfully alliterated by yours truly. That was arrogant, but arrogance starts with A too. So uh, we have an altercation. Okay, we have an altercation. That's the problem. Then what you see secondly is there is an accountability and an appeal. There's a problem. And Paul does not say, hey, we're all a bunch of individual churches, let's just hash it out here. He says, let's go back and deal with this uh, up, at the, up at the place in Jerusalem where he appeals to that. Now, look at verse, if you have your Bibles open, this would be helpful to turn to Acts 15. In verse 4, it says, when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, and these, bre- and these men who are uh, in this controversy, it says, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They didn't say, you have no standing here. They didn't say, who are you? They said, hey, they received them because there's an organic relationship between the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in this era. Uh, That's what Presbyterians are trying to do. But there's an acceptance. So for example, I'm a minister of the Presbytery, but I'm the pastor of another church. And uh, as I come here, uh, because the Presbytery has put me on your provisional session, do you see there's an organic continuity, there's a connection uh, and if Andy came and preached at our congregation, or if you brethren would come and visit us, we would receive you as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we wouldn't examine you again for membership or something like that. And so there's an acceptance. Then, in verse 6, and then in 12 through 18, what you see is essentially the first general assembly. Where they're called together, James seems to be functioning very much as a moderator over this assembly. And it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And you have the really interesting story of how they're dealing with this, how they're hearing uh, these issues, how the gospel's going to the Gentiles and all of the rest. And so there's this discussion. They come to a decision in verses 19 through 21. Therefore I judge, in verse 19, that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. Quick note on that. The first principles there are moral principles. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from sexual morality. The second aspect there, things strangled and from blood, I think are conciliatory to Jewish-leaning Christians in an early age. I don't think these are binding things upon us, this part, but what the, what the assembly is doing is they're trying to figure out how do we function as a church in our age and as we're winning those who are the sons of Abraham to Christ, we don't need to cause any offense in things that don't need to be offensive. And so they're encouraging the Gentiles, don't eat those things that the Jews find offensive when you're around them. Don't get circumcised, but on this particular thing, there's some concession to be made. That's the advice that comes down. In verse 22, then, it pleased the apostles and the elders. And note how, in every case, it's not just the apostles, it's apostles and elders together making these decisions. It says in verse 22, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, uh, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And so, what happens here is essentially this first assembly, to use some um, anachronistic language, they form a committee of the General Assembly, and they send them out to go and report to the churches their decision. And they carry that deliverance to the people, okay? And there's the Antioch delegation. Hopefully, it starts with A, because I couldn't figure out any other word that could start with A to fit in all my alliteration. And then in verse 31, note this, the letter comes. You can read the letter on your own sometime. It says in verse 31, when they read it, that is the recipients in Antioch, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And you see, they accept what the church says. And all of this, what's happening here is the church is working together to work out these very significant issues. And I do believe this is a model for how the church ought to do it. Now, does it always work this smoothly? (laughs) No. I've been to General Assembly a number of times. Andy and I get to go together this summer. Uh, It's not always this smooth. Um, And yet, uh, I think this is a form that helps the church deal with these various matters. Now, in a, in a hierarchical Roman Catholic prelatic structure, how are these kinds of things dealt with? It's not the apostles and elders. It's, not a, it's, it's, it's the hierarchy. It's the bishops or it's the cardinals making these decisions and they're just sent down to be received by the church. In a general assembly, or there is no such a thing in congregational churches because each church is dependent in itself. But in a Presbyterian structure, things are dealt with, things are... are, are carried out. And ideally, those deliverances that come are going to be godly, are going to be biblical. And then the posture of the receiving body should be one of submission, love, and warm acceptance as you receive those things uh, according to the Lord's word. Um, and so your principle here is several fold. The privilege of appeal to assembly of elders. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They appealed up to this uh, higher oversight. And the right of of government exercised by them in their corporate character and so what you see is there's this there's this connectionalism that's invested in the church which is something that we ought always to strive to maintain so there's your crash course in a biblical argument for presbyterianism or six reasons you should be a presbyterian uh, i'm coming to a bat of a, of a, of a uh, abrupt halt because we're out of time uh, are there any questions now that we're done yes sir what Final score, if I can remember this, was anybody keeping a tally? I'm pretty sure that the prolatics got zero. I think congregations got four and a half. And I think the Presbyterians got six. But I will tell you this. Do you know what the greatest problem uh, with Presbyterianism is? Does anybody know what the greatest problem with Presbyterians is? Oops, Presbyterianism. I just, I just spilled the answer. The biggest problem with Presbyterianism is Presbyterians. They're the ones who gum it up. Uh, a biblical system is oftentimes gummed up by ungodly people, sinners, which we all are. Uh, but the Lord Jesus continues to rule, and we trust him. Yes, ma'am? So, if, um, if an elder is not doing his job, how that they can't be an elder? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, there are different ways of dealing with that. Our book of church order. Uh, says, you know, in that case, if a quarter of the people, and, and the way to go about this without causing division in the church, must it's very, very hard to do because you don't want to sow discord. But um, the way to do it is if a quarter of the people of the church do not believe that an elder is edifying to the congregation, they can actually write a letter to their session and state it. Now, hopefully you've already talked with this elder and encouraged them to see a better way. Um, that's one route, and then the, elder needs, the session needs to take that up. Um, The session can also do something a little bit different. I'm a bit fuzzy on our strictures there. Um, But so there are are mechanisms to do it. It must always be done with humility, with fear and trembling. Um, But the other takeaway is, and I've said this many times, it is far easier to get a man into office than to get him out. And so the best time to deal with that is, that's why we're highly, highly scrutinizing. When we go through an officer candidate process, we're very, very, very scrutinizing because of that very issue. So, does that kind of answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? All right. Sorry if I talked too fast. I had a lot to cover. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll prepare for worship. Our God, we thank you for your church, the church which you purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, and how we pray that we would honor him. Uh, Bless our worship today. Thank you for the Lord's Day, uh, for calling us to turn aside from our worldly... Uh, employments and our worldly uh, thoughts, as good as they may be, and to set our hearts in heaven. Would you enable us to do that and to live with joy as you call us to uh, look forward to Christ who's coming from heaven. Uh, bless us now as we turn to worship, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.